AlienLegacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, media, music, comics, and more, check out CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. Hey everybody, he's Nico and I'm Kevo. And this is Husbands Talking More or Less AlienLegacy.html. Yay. Well, HTML is a show where we look at the history of a franchise and keep our eyes on what's going on in it now. Prometheus is a different subject for us altogether, as Prometheus is explicitly focused on evolution from the point of view of the future past, mostly. Prometheus was really confusing when it was coming out because they were very dodgy. Was it going to be related to the Alien franchise? Was it going to be a tangent branch of the Alien franchise? And unfortunately, all of that was part of the marketing ploy. They wanted to be vague because they wanted there to be mystery and intrigue. And they wanted people to be excited about the project. But instead, it just kind of confused everyone. I personally put Prometheus at a strong number three of all of the films we've watched so far, which for those of you playing at home would be Alien, Aliens, Prometheus, AVP. Okay, yeah, I think I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like AVP is a little over Prometheus for me, but I think that might be personal affection over actual critical analysis. I think it comes back to something you mentioned a number of times during the viewing process, and that would probably be Shaw versus Lex. Yeah, I really, really don't like the character of Shaw in this film personally, and I feel bad because I really enjoy the actor. And I enjoy her in other things, but I just, I don't like this character. She is a difficult character to get behind, and that's partially because Ridley Scott was so focused on the emotional realities of dealing with our creators, whether it was in a direct method and talking about parents and progeny, or it was an indirect method and talking about a bigger picture. But in order to understand that bigger picture, we're going to be taking a look at the BTS on Prometheus as well as the four shorts associated with the film and the movie itself. Let's get things rolling. Kevo, tell us a little bit about the goings-on that made Prometheus Unbound. Well, here's something that's fun. One of the writers on this film, John Spates, is someone that we have already covered pretty thoroughly over on our first project, MCU.html. He was one of the screenwriters for the film Doctor Strange. So that's pretty cool. And I really enjoy that we're seeing somebody from that franchise in another franchise like we're kind of like going back and seeing how somebody like spates got work on doctor strange by taking a look at prometheus which is somewhere he started out exactly because yeah this was his first major project after as we mentioned on doctor strange he got some acclaim for a script that eventually became the chris pratt jennifer lawrence film passengers was that the film that was eternally floating around in the never-being-made cycle and then finally got made? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that was this guy! 
Yeah, that was this guy. Ridley Scott hired him to do the script for this film. At the time, Ridley Scott was fresh off of the 2010 adaptation of Robin Hood, starring Russell Crowe. But right before 2014's Exodus, Gods and Kings, where Sigourney Weaver played an Egyptian queen. Sigourney, Sigourney, no, you have to stop. This is a trans appropriation, and this is now a cultural appropriation. Darling, stick to shooting aliens. It's not great. I still love you, but yeah. The script that John Spates wrote, which at the time was titled Alien Engineers, was in most ways pretty faithful to the film we ended up seeing. The final product only differed in a few ways. For one, Shaw was named Watts, the ship was instead called the Magellan, and the planet was straight up just LV-426 this time. I think there are some really interesting things in the changes you're talking about. You said it's not a lot of changes, but they're significant enough changes that I'd be interested in seeing that original adaptation. I would too, especially knowing how much tends to change between script and actual screen in terms of production, so I'd be interested to see what the director might have done with the little tweaks here and there, even though the structure of the story pretty much remains the same like even from the opening scene when the engineer sacrifices himself on earth humanity clearly exists on earth before engineer interference because a primitive human female watches the engineer's ritual here he dissolves into a swarm of small scarab-like insects and one bites the primitive female on the back of the neck infusing her with dna of the dead engineer It's not like a completely foreign idea. It doesn't not line up with what we saw, but it is a very interesting take on what we saw and just like in a different enough direction that it has probably a little bit more Garden of Eden snake kind of overtones to it than the sort of Prometheus Greek tones we got here. Mm, I definitely agree. And I think while you could debate whether humanity existed or not when the engineers appeared on Earth in the final product. In this version, it's a lot more clear that humanity just straight up was already there. I feel as though humanity can't be at the start of Prometheus, the film, because I think part of what we're supposed to be understanding is it's so untouched and the engineers are such a perversion of that natural beauty, but that's probably just me projecting what I want from the film. No, I think you're probably right. I think we are supposed to more clearly feel that the engineers were influencing human evolution and progression from before we even existed. Another major difference is that Watts, or Shaw, and Holloway make their appeal for funding directly to Peter Wayland instead of seeing the voyage already happening and having the recording and Wayland showing up later. Here, Wayland doesn't show up later. We only see an interaction between Watts and Holloway with him at the very beginning. I think it's really interesting that the role of Wayland was different in the original draft because something that changed my entire experience with the film was watching the four shorts attached one of them being a TED Talk from 2023 given by Peter Wayland, and it just massively explained huge chunks of the film to me. I don't know that it completely absolves the film of some of its lack of clarity, which ultimately is one of its failings, but they certainly did infuse the film with more perspective. And I think some of them, if they had been included in some way, shape, or form a little more in the actual produced film, might have enhanced the film. I wonder if maybe the film is a little bit lacking without that information. And it's, you know, a risk you take when you're a writer who enjoys that sort of apocryphal behind-the-scenes videos that are actually really important to the plot writing. 
but we will get to the writer who probably is the one who favors that sort of storytelling shortly. You know, while we're talking about all of this, I just want to say I almost wish that all of the shorts could have been fused into the film and it could have just been two movies at this point with all of the amazing you're bringing to the table. Well, get ready for this doozy, because this one I definitely found incredibly interesting. Rather than being poisoned by David, and that being how he is infected with alien DNA, here Holloway simply falls down a shaft while exploring the pyramid, and is separated for the rest of the team, eventually found wandering aimlessly with no memory of what happened. And then here, an alien bursts from his chest mid-coitus. Which, you know, that's a graphic storytelling choice, sure. There's even, like, concept art of what that would have looked like, and the concept art is hanging very blurry, but definitely there, Dong. Kind of generous, you know, good for Holloway, but something about, I mean, I I understand it's all about life and death and the cycle of rebirth, and there's all the heavy-handed metaphor of what does it take to make life, and so I get that it's that sort of, like, It's lives, lightning crashes, the old mother dies while the child is born, and Ed just sits there in his rocking chair screaming. I understand it, but that's a little too much. I also am really intrigued by the lack of David's involvement in his death in this version of the script, because the character still has the motivations later in the story of wanting to help the engineer in wiping out humanity on Earth. So even though I feel that motivation in the final product was less explicit to me, him being a morally ambiguous and dubious character is still clear in the final product of the film and the fact that he's the one who poisons Holloway. Wow, I really, I love everything you're doing to this film for me. Here's something that David does do, though. Rather than Watts being impregnated by the infected Holloway, here David attacks Watts with a facehugger. Though she does make it to the med pod, the chestburster actually does burst from her chest in the middle of surgery, killing her. However, the med pod systems manage to save her life and repair the damage. She manages to shoot the creature before it can kill her, but not before it kills another crew member. I can't believe I'm saying this. The self-administered robot alien abortion is a better take. In some ways, yes, I definitely agree, but I feel like Watts is a much more, for lack of a better word, badass character than Shaw was. They go through different things, the plots are just vaguely different enough that they don't have the exact same experiences, but like, not only did she kill that xenomorph, she goes on to kill the Holloway xenomorph that burst out of his chest. And she also kills an engineer xenomorph because in this version, even though Wayland is not present for it, a lot of the final act does play out the same way with the engineer intending to return to Earth and wipe out humanity. It's killed mid-flight by a chestburster, though, which is what allows Captain Janik to ram its ship. There's no chestburster in this version. Janik just is able to ram the ship. We're going to get to Janik and how, if it weren't for his- Oh my god, I just realized Benedict Wong is in this, yeah. and it's the same guy that direct- It's the same guy that wrote Doctor Strange. Yeah, because we were talking about the fact that it's Heimdall, and it's Wong, and there's someone else from the MCU who's escaping me at the moment. But yeah. That's amazing. Funny enough, Ridley Scott was influenced and inspired partially by a writer who we've mentioned on this show before, whose name I still have not looked up how to pronounce, 
Eric von Daniken, the Chariots of the Gods guy, the same guy that the story for Alien vs. Predator was influenced by. The dude who's like, the Norse gods were really just aliens? Mm-hmm. We're going to call him Captain Stargate. Ridley Scott is quoted as saying, NASA and the Vatican agree that it is almost mathematically impossible that we can be where we are today without there being a little help along the way. That's what we're looking at in the film, at some of Eric von Daniken's ideas of how we humans come about. So, sure, and they had a script and they were mostly happy with it, but not completely. So Ridley Scott contacted a little-known writer who uh, goes by the name of Damon Lindelof. Have you heard of this guy? No, I'm lost. I, I, I guess he, I would say he's probably best known for his work on Kevin Williamson's 1999 series Wasteland. Or perhaps the MTV series Undressed? Weird. I have to imagine some of these credits are just leftovers that other people didn't want. Well, maybe he's known for his work on Nash Bridges from 2000 to 2001, or Crossing Jordan from 2001 to 2004. I wonder if he'll ever start to trek over to more sci-fi. Well, here's what's funny. At this point, he had not written a Star Trek film yet. He was a producer on J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek. His only major screenplay before this one was Cowboys and Aliens in 2011, which was co-written by many other people and directed by John Favreau. And as we know, that means that John Favreau pretty much wrote most of it. Or let everybody in it write it for themselves. Kind of, yeah. So Ridley Scott contacted Damon Lindelof and asked him to review Spades' script. A messenger arrived within an hour to hand deliver the script and inform Lindelof that he would wait outside to return it as soon as Lindelof was done reading it. Uh, wait, I'm sorry. Did you say Ridley Scott did this or Peter Wayland? Right? Like, that's some intense stuff right there. The final prong of my favorite trifecta of filmmakers is the composer Mark Streitenfeld, but he doesn't really have a lot of credits to his name. In fact, all of them before this are specifically Ridley Scott films. He did A Good Year in 2006, American Gangster in 2007, Body of Lies in 2008, and Robin Hood in 2010. The most major credit that I saw on his resume after this film was the Poltergeist remake in 2015. You keep bringing up that Ridley Scott did a Robin Hood movie with Russell Crowe, and I have to be honest, no level of it penetrated my cultural vernacular for even a moment. I remember that it exists just because I keep seeing it come up because I'm looking up Ridley Scott's name a lot. But yeah, no, I don't I don't really remember it either. I do have to say, even though he doesn't have a ton of credits, we really did enjoy Mark Streitenfeld's work in this film. And while doing my research, I discovered that not only did he begin writing ideas for the score immediately after reading the script before filming even commenced, but to create the unsettling sound that we get, he provided the orchestra with reversed music sheets to have them place segments of the score backwards before then digitally reversing it. So that's why it has that unsettling sound to it. But also, there was something majestic about this score, like an eagle covered in a venom symbiote. It was darkly majestic. Like mm -hmm. that moment when Queen Tilda is like, you will have a queen in, I almost said Forest Hills of the Rings Gump. I have no idea what the fuck movie I just invented. I really don't either. Mama always said, life is like a box of elven chocolates. You're going to live a really long time while your human lovers die. But so delicious. Other fun fact for me, though. The score was conducted by composer Ben Foster, who I know from Doctor Who. He wrote a bunch of stuff for Doctor Who and Torchwood. He's super cute, too. Didn't he play Angel in X-Men 3, The Last Stand? No, get out of here. 
I do think that a lot, though. For as much as an Alien fan as I am, I'll be honest, these four shorts were completely new to me. As a matter of fact, in my early research, I only found record of three shorts. But the four shorts are Introducing the New Model David, Ted 2023, Quiet Eye, and Happy Birthday David. And these four shorts, roughly 20 minutes of content, added so much to the narrative of the film for me. It's the kind of stuff that Ridley Scott was clearly trying to get across with the movie, but kind of couldn't. I think Quiet Eye was so unsettling in so many ways. Quiet Eye featured an extensive amount of facial recognition software mapping Shaw's face as she spoke about her passion for her project. I found myself even more invested in the character. Shaw is by far not my favorite Xeno gal. Of the three we've had, she's probably my third place. Not in any way comparing the women in a competition style, but evaluating them each for what they bring to the table, regardless of gender, I find Shaw is the least actionary and the most reactionary. I like my Xeno gals taking control, like I like my Preda guys taking control, which is why the only Preda guy that really works for me is Dutch. I like Shaw a lot, I think, as a tragic character. You know, in some ways, it's Shaw's fault, so to speak that alien even happens in the first place because her expedition and the loss of Peter Wayland on said expedition and leaving behind this notion of where he went that there's these alien creatures out there is probably part of what led the Nostromo to be sent to try and find some sort of alien life. And you know, it's interesting to see a story that is so almost completely disconnected from the thing that it is meant to be a prequel to. That disconnection, though, powerfully strengthens it. One of my fears had been that Prometheus would be little more than the Phantom Menace. We would see the origin of the alien in a way that would let us down. If I feel something is a strength of Prometheus, it's how strongly it stands on its own, independent of the alien franchise. My favorite and yet least favorite of the prequel shorts was certainly TED 2023. TED 2023 was a TED talk given by Peter Wayland with the reveal that he's Peter Wayland coming at the end. And he talks about a lot of the same quotes that we hear in the film. And in some ways, I almost wish this opened the movie. I feel really like these 20 minutes of scenes, while they don't all make sense in the course of this film, and that must be why they were cut, these weren't treated like webisodes where the backup characters appeared more than the main characters. This wasn't some sort of Degrassi after-school daycare special. These had Idris Elba and James McAvoy and Queen Cheekbones. Oh, did I mean Michael Fassbender? Do I think they're the same person by name? Oh, I thought you were trying to say Logan Marshall Green and that's why you said James McAvoy. But yeah, you said James McAvoy and you meant Michael Fassbender. But yes, Michael Fassbender. Wait, and Logan Marshall Green was the original Trey on the OC. No, he was the second Trey on the OC, but yeah, he's the one from What You Say. Mm. So what you say about these shorts, how did you feel they played into the narrative of the film? Did it hurt stretching that far? Look, I only meant well. Nice. Okay. You redeemed it. That was good. Uh, Of course I did. Get the fuck out of here. I think for the most part, they probably enhanced the narrative in more ways than not. And I 
wish they had been a little bit more integrated into the film. I think featurettes are the coolest thing in the world, but you also want to make sure that you are making a complete enough film on its own that you don't need the shorts to enhance the story or make the story make more sense, you know? It's like an outfit. If you need to put the shorts on, the shirt's probably not long enough. Yeah, okay. So my gay little heart could barely handle going to see this movie the night it came out. I brought a group of my friends because my heart just couldn't take it. And I remember walking out of the film being like, I'm changed! I'm changed! And I loved it so much, I saw it in IMAX again a week later with one of Kevo's best friends. And I just remember being so taken aback by it. And then I bought the Blu-ray the day it came out. And I watched it that night with a group of friends. And made so many people watch the movie. So many times. And the alternate introduction and the alternate ending. And with a little bit of distance and some perspective and some realizations about the failings of fandoms and film franchises and the right amount of medication i can say i like this movie but it is not a strong enough film to base a religion around but holy shit the minute you start this movie it is like a thomas kincaid adams family painting it is so beautiful and so passionate but so macabre and surreal and unsettling in a way that strokes the embers of my heart it's a really incredible furnace of evolution. Now, you are someone who has always been a fan of the android bishop. So talk to us about how you felt regarding the introduction of the android David. I think it's really weird that he has to bleach his roots as an android. Also, I realize that's that's the third one that we were thinking of. It's Magneto, Heimdall, and Wong. Yeah. Right, it's Magneto. It's Magneto, yeah. yeah. Okay. Te- technically not MCU. That's why I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. So, I hate David. Ha! <laughs> I really hate David, I guess. I love David. I do. I actually love David, but I hate David. I felt like they kept daring us to think he was going to be evil or not. Like, they kept daring us. And every time I got close enough to take the cheese, they would yank my cheese away. And I kept being like, stop it. The android's going to be evil or he's not. And I mean, ultimately, I don't know that David can be measured on a scale that interprets the good or bad quality of actions because David is amoral, not immoral. Mm -hmm. David doesn't experience emotion. He has sensory input. So he does computational analysis of a situation and makes the best decision for himself. He is little more than programmed to be an apex predator with safety controls on. The situation he finds himself in allows those safety controls to relinquish a little bit. But if if you're asking me my opinion on the... Why did that come out like Christopher Walken? If you're asking me my opinion, that's a terrible Christopher Walken. I'm Christopher Walken away from that. Yeah, that became drunk Italian Christopher Walken. I don't know what that was. It's me, Christopher Mario. I don't want you to save your princess unless she's Natalie Wood. So if you're asking me my opinion of the four androids, who conveniently go in alphabetical order, Ash, Bishop, Call, David, I would probably put him in third. Uh, I mean, the problem is I'm like scraping the bottom of the barrel with Call and Ash. Oh my god, I need a ton of Ew David shirts, but like Michael Fassbender as David. (laughs) Especially the part where he touches Holloway's drink. I want someone to put Alexis saying Ew David over that. 
I kind of want it to be Ripley over that saying it or Shaw, but I'll take anything, really. This movie is so fascinating because, like I said, it dares us to be tempted by the darkness over and over again. The movie loves to give us hope and then confront it with, I guess, hateful aggression. So much of this movie starts out with the idea of belief, that we see the stars in the sky and David's constantly like, why do you believe? And Shaw is like, because I have no other choice. I can't have children and I can't have parents. I mean, you're not wrong. And yeah, her whole faith shtick is, I think, part of why I was a little hard to sell on this character. Are you a scientist? You're very gaudy for this alien trip. And then she's the only survivor. That was another thing, too. It's not until people, like, start doing bad things, like Vicar and Janik having sex, or Sean Holloway having sex, or that dude smoking weed, that's when all of a sudden everyone starts dying, like this is Camp Xenomorph. Beyond the fact that it's a morality play, I just realized for the first time that there's a bishop and a vicar. Yeah. There's too many levels to this, and it's all so religious. But I'm really glad you brought up Vicar, because I hate her. I love Charlize Theron, and if I'm saying it, I'm so sorry I'm wrong, but I think her character is one-dimensionally simple in an effort to escape from certain tropes. I agree, but at the same time, I do feel that her character is not treated very differently than many male characters would be treated as the same sort of character archetype. So I appreciate that we saw it through a female character lens. She could have probably been a ton more well-developed, but, you know, them's the tropes. And I wonder if ultimately showing her open to the sexuality presented by Janik is supposed to be part of that. And I do think it's interesting that the captain, essentially, his name is Janik, Janice, January 1st, open door, that the one who leads them, his name is Janik. Like, this movie really went for some, like, on-the-nose shit. David versus David and Goliath, and the engineers are enormous. Ooh, ooh, the fact that it's Christmas. The fact that it's Christmas. Doesn't she say it's, like, January 1st or 3rd or something at the very end of the movie? Yeah, all that January stuff. There's a lot of the birth of fire and cold in this film. Even the planet, which isn't shown to be like covered in snow or anything, it's given a desolate coldness once you get onto it. But before we can even get there, we have that really entertaining hollow call with the past where Wayland is like, I've picked you all to go to this planet and do the thing. So go do the thing. I'm old and dead. And he just ends the message with, well, the floor is yours. Like, okay, well, time to go die. And it doesn't help that he looks like Mr. Burns. Yeah. It, like, makes it hard. Like, I mean, no, it's Guy Pierce. Hey! It's another MCU person! Oh my god, I didn't even realize because we don't like his character in the MCU so much. But yeah. Hey, that was fun. So... And the two villains are working together. David and Wayland are working together. And Heimdall and Wong are working together. Huh. Man, if you can't be with the one you love. So I feel like this cast, uh, it's so many amazing names. And if you needed any more indication that Wayland wasn't done in the film after that opening segment, you just had to realize it was Guy Pierce under the makeup. I wonder if they were hoping you wouldn't, or that perhaps Ridley Scott's name returning to the Alien franchise would bear such caveat. 
that they would be able to get Guy Pierce for such a minor role, but it didn't feel genuine that he would be done at that point, and it made a lot of the scenes between Vickers and David feel very choreographed, and I found myself uninspired by a lot of the cast. Even the characters I liked, such as Janik's side characters, including Benedict Wong, who looks gorgeous in this movie. Their side bed is cute, but I don't feel like they're really developed enough. I feel like there's really only room for the development of four characters in this movie, and everyone else is just window dressing. You know, I feel bad as a fellow writer because there are just certain tropes that are too overdone that even trying to put them in, people are just so sick of them the way I'm sick of cilantro. Like, the Vickers reveal of her being Wayland's daughter. I mean, I think people could have not seen it coming, but I feel like we're getting to a place in storytelling where most people get it before they don't, and you either need to find better ways and new variations on tropes and ideas like that, or you just need to leave them alone, you know? I don't think that her being his daughter necessarily enhanced anything to the plot other than plot twist. That's why she knows him so much. But she could have just as easily been his right-hand man, and that's why she has all of these funds and her special escape hot. Speaking of hand, that part where she makes out with his hand, I hate that part where she's like, Old people die, and they give their jobs to young people. Let me make out with your hand, Daddy. Yeah. David, get me my slippers. I need to pee. It's just weird. You know, it's leaps and bounds above what the franchise was able to accomplish over 30 years before. But there's still, you know, the Pratt Falls, the part where Holloway is like, oh, God doesn't build in straight lines, land over there. Uh, I mean, like, sometimes you see straight lines occurring in nature. You didn't look at any other part of the planet that we saw, and maybe that's just an error down to editing and cutting things for pacing, but you have to think about these things as a storyteller, and how modern audiences are going to react to the things that your characters say like that. As this is an alien film, the movie doesn't really start till we get onto that planet, and... I think moving it all to a temple was a really interesting strike in a new direction, and I partially wonder if Ridley Scott so resented AVP because of some of the ways it bordered on what he wanted to do. Oh, probably, yeah. Their first trip down into this alien temple is so filled with imagery. It was so exciting to see, but in a lot of ways, outside of the big screen, it lacks the kind of impact that Scott was, I think, hoping it would have. Not through any limitation of his own as a storyteller or as a filmmaker, but rather, he was trying to capture something so larger than life, sticking it on a small TV with poor color rendering sucks. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's a little less awe-inspiring, and it's a little harder to really understand the aspect ratio between the humans and the engineers and everything like that. Things go primarily the way one would expect them to go. They go down into the tunnels, people get scared. Two of the team run off while the rest of the team return. They head back with, well that was a fun choice of words, an engineer's head? Uh, apparently that's a concept that had been in the original concept for Alien in 1979 and was cut because it was, you know, expensive. Wow, that's wild. Right? Now... I think it was really, really, really dumb to let anybody go off on their own. I mean, 
all said and done, they make their own choices as people, but it does seem like you were ramping up to let those guys die. Yeah, that's another thing about films like this. As an audience, we go in sort of assuming everyone is up on the chopping block, and, you know, that instinct would prove correct for this film, so... David's villainy takes a humongous step forward at this point in the movie, and it's such a questionable moment of villainy, and it's why I had to say that he's amoral, not immoral. Not only does he get Holloway's permission to poison him, kind of, you would do anything for it, but he pretty much begins to stalk around the ship going, he he he, I'm androidly whiplash. That's why I don't really know if I would say that it's amoral. He seems to be aware of what he is doing and in some ways taking glee from it. I feel like he almost chooses Holloway to poison because he feels that Holloway is rude to him about being a robot, which adds a really interesting layer to the final interaction between Shaw and David at the end of the film, where she's like, that's because you're a robot. Like, spoiler alert for Covenant, but if he did what he did to Holloway for being rude, Shaw, watch out. And once he poisons Holloway, the movie takes a dive in a very different direction, This is the point at which it becomes an alien movie, and Holloway and Shaw bang after an awkward scene where she's like, I can't have kids, which it just feels like he knows she can't have kids, so like, this is a weird time to bring that up. Yeah. Beyond that, and I understand it had to be so that she could become immediately quickly pregnant with the Xenobaby or the squid creature later on, but... His rapid deterioration is such that I do feel like this is the point at which the movie becomes body horror. His rapid deterioration is horrifying. It's one of the things that Damon Lindelof was brought on to help branch the story out. A lot of the original script by Spates had been a little more focused on the traditional xenomorph life cycle process. And I think Lindelof was probably the one who influenced them to explore the different forms of body horror that you could do that are in the same family as what the Xenomorph does, which is why we see what is referred to as either the Holloway Xenomorph or the Beluga Xenomorph, which, hilarious. Why Beluga? Because it looks like a beluga whale because it's all white and stuff and its head looks like a whale and everything. Yeah, okay. I'm with you. Yeah. I even called it squid-like. Yeah, okay. I get it. Yeah. When they return to get their lost teammates, they are in for a brutal shock. It's not just that Holloway is becoming sicker and sicker, but Vickers makes it clear that she is in this for herself. And I actually really do love the flamethrower moment, and I think it's really noble that Holloway takes himself out. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I don't blame Vickers. Like, I mean, she's disgusting, and she's a nightmare, but I don't exactly blame her here. Holloway has no idea what he's turned into, and he knows better than to become a danger to everyone else any further. Shaw is blinded by a desire not to lose anyone. This was a knowledge mission. They were never meant to come into contact with alien life forms. Or if they were, they weren't prepared for any hostile threats. Certainly, they're really underprepared to take on any kind of fight. As for the other two crew members, the nightmarish things that happen to them are a mix of weird CG and half-formed concepts. I don't mind the 
oral penetration by the eel creature, but I do have some questions about what exactly happened to their geologist friend that he is like some sort of swamp thing. Yeah, I don't exactly understand all of it, but that's okay. This is about evolution. This is about not answering all of my questions. It's about taking me to the next idea. And oh boy, that next idea is a doozy because it's Shaw is pregnant and has to abort the baby herself. From an abortion vending machine. So the best part is it's not even an abortion vending machine. It's like a stomachectomy vending machine. And she pretends that what she needs to get out would be like where a baby is. So... It's kind of like not an aborto vend machine, but like she turns it into one, which is a really creative use. Uh, Good for her. It's a lot. It is one of the more disturbing visual scenes I can think of seeing in the movies. Yeah, it was like Black Swan, but in five minutes. And with alien babies. So much alien babies. So after the encounter with White Squid. Oh, Ridley Scott actually did direct White Squall. That is just an amazing level to this. Scott Wolf. White Squall wolf so the squid you were saying so after the white squid encounter it's kind of hard to believe that the movie just goes on but it does and like shaw has like normal conversations i mean the performance by nomi rapace is incredible and she is broken but she has like normal conversations with people and she interacts with janik who is such a noble character at this point it's amazing and it's a really extreme set of circumstances that i you know if it really weren't that they're on this desolate planet and there's really no chance of getting home i just don't know that i would accept that they just keep moving along yeah the only thing that seems to keep her going is well i'm already here so someone needs to answer for all this shit that's gone on They've blown up an engineer head, and now they're going to go hang out with the one living engineer who David found in stasis. David explored the catacombs of the engineer temple further, and is... I I just don't understand some of David's goals. Like, he's kind of working with the engineers, but the engineers don't care or want it, and they don't know that he is, because he's, like, doing this to prove himself to them, maybe? And at the same time, he's supposed to be working with Peter Wayland, but he's not. I think he was hoping that, especially because his own creators, the humans, didn't treat him with the respect he felt he deserved for being a superior being, he hoped perhaps that the engineers would recognize him as a superior being closer to them than to the humans. But much like Shaw hoping to get answers for everything, he ultimately did not get the answers that he wanted to. Because, you know, when you're a quote-unquote superior life form, you don't feel that you owe those sort of answers to an inferior one. Much like Shaw and Holloway treat David as inferior. And David treats all of the humans in a lot of ways. So in a lot of ways, the moral of the story of this film is none of y'all should be treating each other like dicks, because you're all pretty insignificant in the end. And insignificant in the end is really the way to describe all of this. Now, look, they should have run to the side. Nobody's arguing that. I think we're supposed to think that the ship is so large, she wouldn't make it if she ran to the side. I guess, but this is definitely one of those things that I give people a lot more than I give them the Rose and Jack door thing from Titanic. It was scientifically proven that it couldn't have been done. However... 
I do believe someone could have perhaps run slightly to their right instead of directly forward because that's not how you escape a giant rolling donut. No, and man, does it just like roll right over Vickers. And so Shaw is like kind of going to get away, but the engineer comes for her and it turns out her baby is a giant squid monster now. It just starts to feel like the movie will never end. It really does because it feels like they're torturing Shaw at this point. And I guess in some ways it mirrors Alien in the way that Ripley's journey still isn't done and she has to defeat the Xenomorph one more time, but I don't know that it worked as well this time. I don't either. However, I do enjoy the Xenomorph versus Engineer at the end of the film. It gives a lot of things to think about. The film opens with an Engineer purposely poisoning itself with the toxin to move life along on Earth. And then here, we see an engineer force-fed a baby by the Xeno creature that used a human host to create its first human. So it's sort of this endless cycle of life, which came first, the engineer or the engineered. It seems like it could go back further than we even really know. Yeah, okay. So you're saying that humanity came from this first engineer that sacrificed himself. A human spawned a xenomorph. The xenomorph spawned another xenomorph from itself and an engineer. So, like, it's this weird feedback loop. Hmm, that's so weird. Science is weird. It's how Fry is almost his own grandfather. Wasn't there a xenomorph episode of Futurama? Didn't they face xenomorphs in, like, the new seasons on Comedy Central or something? I have to assume they did. This movie closes with two very ominous moments. We have David and Shaw working together to find the engineers. We have to assume that David is going to kill Shaw at some point, because even though he is just a head at this point, like the engineer that exploded and that head represented danger, this head represents the same thing, the threat to her survival, but she needs him. It's interesting how many times Just Ahead comes up as a visual in the franchise, like Ash in the first film, Bishop in both the second and third films. The representation of the xenomorph skull on the wall in Predator 2. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a lot to be said about the masks that we wear and the heads that we collect. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And speaking of heads that we collect, baby Zeno at the end there. Oh, you were so happy. I remember that. I'm pretty sure I cried. Like, I'm actually pretty sure I cried in the theater. It's probable. It was a little baby just for me. It's so cute. It's just so cute. It's so cute. All newborns are ugly. Well, that's fair. Speaking of ugly, the next time we come back together, it's to discuss the disappointment that was Covenant. Yeah, that's something that I have to say about the movie Prometheus. I think it was easier to enjoy it when it was new and the future was a lot more full of promise and there was the hope of Covenant being something more along the lines of Prometheus being both horror and like philosophical, existential, whatever, like but there's none of that in Covenant. It's straight up just a horror movie and not even a really great one at that. It's a horror movie with 10 minutes of David waxing philosophical that because of the horror movie setting boils him down to little more than a jigsaw type super baddie. 
it's incredibly disappointing. And the thing picking them off isn't the killer. The killer is David. The thing picking them off is aliens. It's just a huge disappointment of a film. So it's like if Jurassic Park had a serial killer element involved. Now there's your movie. On that really depressing note, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And you can find me on the Facebook page for this lovely program, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Real Nico Kevo Action, which is where you can also find our couples Instagram and Tumblr, but not Twitter, which is instead at Real Nico Kevo Ack, A-C-K. You can also find the super fun, super cool, super inclusive superhero stories that we tell over at KidRideComics.com. Nico, where can the folks find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like Now and Again, which I do with my childhood best friend, where we talk about pop music through the lens of the Now That's What I Call Music series. Don't forget to check out X's for podcast. Kevin and Mai's show with our boyfriend Jonah and our friends Dylan and Kyle, where we talk about the X-Men comic book franchise. Look me up on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and until we return to be upset with Covenant, we will see you guys out here in Big Space! Bye. Bye.